Chapter Seven of There Is Laughter in the Air, Radio's Top Comedians and Their Best Shows. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Christine G. There is laughter in the air. Radio's top comedians and their best shows, by Jack Gaver and Dave Stanley. Chapter Seven, Eddie Cantor, Girls, Girls, Girls. They could ration jokes tomorrow, and Eddie Cantor wouldn't have to worry. He has told many thousands of jokes in his time, but he has gotten more mileage from a single one of them than from all the rest combined. He probably has cashed this gag oftener than any other comic has offered one joke for sale, yet it has never bounced back from the audience marked not sufficient fun. People never seem to get tired of hearing Cantor kid himself about being the father of five girls and no boys. The joke has been perhaps even better for radio than it has for the comedian's other two entertainment media, the Broadway stage and the movies. And there is still television. And, speaking of television, Eddie already has experimented with that and has the distinction, if you can call it that, of being the first person censored in that medium. It happened May 26, 1944, in New York, where Eddie and his radio troupe were visiting for a few weeks and doing their broadcasts. He and his girl vocalist, Nora Martin, were down for a song number to be televised from WNBT in New York to WPTZ, Philadelphia, where it would be seen by those attending a commercial group's dinner. Eddie and Nora were well launched into We're Having a Baby, My Baby and Me, a hit song from a canter musical comedy of a few years earlier, when the sound was suddenly cut off. The players were seen during the rest of the number but the sound did not come back until the last line of the song. The lines that were not heard had to do with the wife thanking the husband for the fact that they were going to have a baby, his assurance that he shouldn't be thanked because it was a pleasure, and that the next one would be on him, and something to the effect that if George Jessel could do it, why couldn't he? Officials of NBC, where the censoring was done, said Cantor had been told before the broadcast, that the lyrics were objectionable. Cantor had said there wasn't time to prepare another number. Rather than abandon the program, NBC simply decided to delete the objectionable lines. There are few that can match Cantor's years of service as a top radio comic. His first exposure to the new industry was as early as 1921, when he broadcast over a small New Jersey station as an experiment. During that broadcast, the comedian said there was no way of knowing that people were listening, so he'd feel better about having broadcast if there was some tangible evidence. He suggested that each person who heard him send in a dime to be contributed to the Salvation Army. After a visit on the Valley program in February 1931, Cantor got his own show in September of that year. Through 1934 he sold coffee for Chase and Sanborn. In 1935 he pitched for a toothpaste. 1936 to 37 found him working for a gas company. In 1938 it was cigarettes. In 1939 to 45 
inclusive, he was the property of the Bristol Myers drug people. Eddie always has had a fast variety show on the air, with plenty of singing both by himself and others. He is proud of such graduates as Gracie Allen, Deanna Durbin, Bobby Breen, and a comic known as Parkier Carcass, a name that was punned into a national menace. Eddie's own peculiar breathless excitement, both in dialogue and song, comes across the airwaves well. Among air firsts, he claims the distinction of first using the announcer as a straight man to his own comedy and of first employing stooges on the air. He is proud of having been the first comedian to get serious on a comedy program, for example, his Drive Carefully, We Love Our Children campaign. Cantor became the first comedian with his own package show. He got all the money and paid everyone on the program. This was in 1935. The comedian, like many other radio performers, has done a lot of his broadcasting, as well as extra entertaining, for service groups during the war. He is especially interested in what he calls the Purple Heart Circuit, the hospitals for the wounded. One of his pet projects is to organize entertainers so there will be a steady flow of them to these hospitals in the years after the war is over and people will be prone to forget that there are thousands of men still being treated and in need of a cheering up. In 1944, Cantor conducted a contest to determine the typical G.I. Joe. The $5,000 award went to Private Charles Pierce. During the fall of 1944, his radio campaign, in cooperation with the American Legion and department stores, was directed at getting gifts for the wounded and sick in Army and Navy hospitals. As a matter of fact, Cantor has always had some pet project on his mind. He is in the vanguard of most charitable and patriotic movements. He sponsors annually a fundraising campaign of sending poor boys to a summer camp, and he heads the March of Dimes campaign to get funds to fight infantile paralysis. One of his ideas backfired. In 1936, he offered a scholarship for the best essay on How America Can Stay Out of the War, and the winner was a youth who later confessed he had submitted plagiarized material. Cantor's interest in the needy and oppressed undoubtedly stems from his own Joe-Leave boyhood. He was born in New York on January 31, 1892, as Edward Israel Iskowich, the son of Russian immigrant parents. Both his father and mother were dead before he was three years old, and his maternal grandmother, Esther, a poor woman, took him in. Life was pretty much hand-to-mouth during his growing years, but he had a disposition that made the best of things and developed a natural aptitude for mimicking people. His interest in summer camp work stems from the fact that he was sent to one and never forgot how much it did for him. While still in his teens, he got a crush on Ida Tobias, the belle of Henry Street, who lived in considerably better circumstances than Eddie, and whose parents were not too enthusiastic about her associating with the gamin. He was always engaging in shenanigans and gave no signs of having a stable future. 
Cantor was firmly trapped by show business when, at the age of sixteen, he won an amateur night prize at Miner's Bowery Theatre. He did impersonations. A few weeks later, he had a job in a burlesque house at fifteen dollars weekly. This ended when the troupe went on tour and became stranded. The next stop was Carrie Walsh Saloon in Coney Island, where he sang for his supper and met Jimmy Durante, who played piano for him. Eddie turned into a singing waiter when he found out he could make more money than as a mere entertainer. After that, Cantor did sixteen weeks in small-time vaudeville around New York, joined a well-known vaudeville act, Bedini and Arthur, and turned with Gus Edwards, Kiddy Gabaret. He already had discovered advantages in appearing in blackface. In 1914, Eddie, whose agent had managed to get him and his vaudeville partner, Al Lee, some bookings in England, called at the Tobias home and asked for permission to marry Ida. By this time, Tobias Pear had become convinced that Ida never would get interested in any of the steady young men with prospects who came a-courting, and he gave in with reluctant good grace. The vaudeville act didn't do well in England, but André Charlotte put Eddie into one of his revues. The outbreak of World War I cut this career short, and the Cantus hustled back home, where Lee and Cantor put in more time on the vaudeville circuits. Eddie went into his first musical show when Earl Carroll tapped him for Canary Cottage. After that came the beginning of the long and profitable association with Florence Siegfield, twenty weeks in the midnight frolic on the new Amsterdam roof. Then came rapid success in three editions of the Siegfield Follies and other musical shows including the famous Kid Boots. With that, Eddie was a five-thousand-dollar-a-week man. He made this into a movie and followed it with another film, Special Delivery. Both of them were highly successful. The biggest stage success of his career came in 1921-30, to 30, when he starred in Siegfeld's Whoopee, following this up with a movie version. At that time Cantor declared he was through with Broadway because he didn't want to wear out his welcome as he had seen some other great stars do. He wanted to leave him laughing, so the movies and radio got him. But he did come back to Broadway. In 1941 he appeared in Banjo Eyes, the show that contained the television censored song, in a 50-50 deal with Warner Brothers. After that, Hollywood and radio claimed all of his time. In 1943, he secured a producer's tie-up with RKO and presented himself in a nostalgic film about vaudeville. In middle age, Cantor seems to have as much energy as a performer as he always had, and that's plenty. His speciality is a bouncy, nervous demeanor that takes him all over a stage. A lot of people have gone through life with the impression that they've seen Cantor dance in his musical shows, but actually he is not a dancer. It's just his bouncing around that gives the impression. His outstanding physical characteristic, of course, is his eyes. They bug out prominently, and Eddie has made almost as much capital of them as of his daughters and Ida. 
The story is told that Eddie once fled from a physician's office when the doctor told him that his eyes bulged because something was wrong with the throat gland, a slight disorder that could be easily remedied. Cantor has quite a list of writings to his credit. In 1928 he published his autobiography, written with the late Dave Friedman, and called My Life is in Your Hands. After that he published short, gag-type booklets, one of which, caught short, helped him recoup some of the considerable losses he dropped in Wall Street in 1929. You Who Prosperity, The Educanter Five-Year Planned, and Your Next President Were Others. Cantor used a running-for-president gag during part of one radio season, and it was a long time before the echoes of a resounding chant called We Want Cantor died out of the air. The daughters, incidentally, are Marjorie, Natalie, Edna, Marilyn, and Janet. Eddie became a grandfather in 1939, when Natalie and Joseph Metzger became parents. And, of all things, it was a boy. End of chapter 7